This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. You guys can be seated. One of the books of the Bible where Christ is incredibly clear is in Isaiah's prophecy. So if you're new today, we have been walking through the book of Isaiah. We've come today to chapter 11 of Isaiah, and we're talking about when King Jesus reigns. So in Isaiah 11, 1 through 9, we see a clear picture of the first coming of Christ as well as the return of Christ. When King Jesus reigns. Isaiah 11, and let's look at the first nine verses. I'm going to be reading from the ESV today because the, it just kind of captures the poetry here, the beautiful poetry that we see in this text. Let's look at it together. Isaiah 11 and verses 1 through 9. You follow along in your copy of God's Word. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful prophecy. And we pray that as we we think about Jesus, both in his first coming and in his second coming. We pray that we would understand in a deeper way than we have before that you are a God who keeps your promises, that you are so trustworthy, that whatever we're dealing with right now, we can put it in your hands and trust you with it. Because you keep your promises. And we pray that you would give us today 
a vision of the, the glory of the future that is, is ours as, as believers in a new heaven and earth. And that the hope of that future would change the way that we do life right now in the present. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take your word down by the power of your spirit. That you would deal with our minds and our hearts for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. There used to be a, a saying about a certain kind of, of Christian. You know, she's, she's so heavenly minded that she's no earthly good. He's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. But I think that for believers in prosperous countries like America, that's rarely the case. I think that for American believers, the temptation is almost always the opposite of that. The temptation for us is to be so earthly minded that we're no heavenly good. We are far more likely to be like the seed that fell among thorns that Jesus told about in the parable of the sower. That seed that fell among thorns had its fruitfulness choked out by the worries and the cares and the riches and the things of this life. I mean, how many American believers spend a lot of time thinking about eternity? Maybe, maybe some older believers do. You're closer to heaven and you're, you, you're yearning for heaven. And so maybe you think about it more. But I think for the vast majority of us, our lives tend to be consumed with the things of this life. With the things of day to day. What if I told you that by focusing more on eternity, that the things of, this, of your day-to-day -day life could be transformed? What if I told you that by focusing on the hope that is yours as a believer in the future, that it could have a transforming effect upon your present? And that's what we see here in this text. So let's check it out. First of all, we see here the coming of the king. The coming of the king. His first coming. Let's look at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So Jesse was the father of of Israel's greatest king, King David. But God made a covenant with David. God promised King David that there was going to, for, to come forth from him one of his descendants who would be a forever king with a forever kingdom. And we call this promise the Davidic covenant. And we see it in 2 Samuel 7. Let's look at it. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. God said to King David, 
when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So in the immediate context here, God's talking about Solomon, David's son Solomon, who was going to build a temple. But some of the language here in the Davidic covenant goes well beyond Solomon, right? Because God's promising here a forever king. A forever kingdom. That's not Solomon. That's Jesus. And so when we get to the stories of Jesus' birth, what you see is that the gospel writers, particularly Luke, are very, very careful to show that Jesus is coming from the line of David. Let's look at Luke chapter 1 and verses 26 and 27. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And then what does, what does Gabriel say to Mary? He goes on in verses 31 through 33 of Luke 1. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him what? The throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And so Gabriel's words to Mary are, are almost, the language is almost ex exactly like the words of the Davidic covenant. And by the way, when Jesus is born, where is he born? In Bethlehem, which is what? Luke 2 and verse 11. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. What does all this tell us? God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. You can trust him. Whatever you're dealing with today in your own life, you can trust God with it because he's a promise-keeping God. Now let's go back to Isaiah 11.1 again. God says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. We had a holly tree cut down in our yard this summer because it was dying. But I noticed a couple of weeks after we cut it down that there were little shoots that, of holly that were coming up from that stump. And you see, the kings of Israel were going to be cut down. There was going to be invasion. There was going to be exile. But God's true king was still going to come. But when he came, very few people recognized who he was. No, he was like a little shoot coming up. We're going to see in Isaiah 53 and verse 2, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. But from this young plant, from this, this shoot 
that nobody recognized at the time was going to come a glorious branch that we can take shelter and shade beneath. We can find rest in him. Now speaking of rest, let's go back to Isaiah 11 and look at verse 2. It says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. What happened when Jesus was baptized? The Spirit of the Lord came to rest upon him. Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him, coming to rest on him. Go back to verse 2 again. What is the Spirit like? The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Do you need guidance today? Go to Jesus. He has a spirit of wisdom and understanding. And not only that, but he's willing to give it to you. Because it's the spirit of counsel. He's willing to come alongside you and impart his counsel. And he's able to make it happen because it's the spirit of might, of strength. Whatever you're dealing with today, just invite Jesus Christ into that situation and see what happens. And we see here the coming of the king. And second, we see the return of the king. The return of the king. Look at verses 3 and 4. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now, the language here in verses 3 and 4 moves us from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. Because when Christ comes again, he is coming to judge. There's been lots of talk in our nation this week about judges with a Supreme Court nomination. But you know what? Even the best human judge has limitations. Because even the best of human judges can only judge by what our eyes see, by what our ears hear. But when Christ comes as judge, he will have no such limitations. He will not be limited to what his eyes see and what his ears hear. When Christ returns, he will judge the heart because he sees through the heart. And when Jesus returns, every heart will be laid bare. And that's a scary thing when we think about it because our hearts are a mess, right? Our hearts are a jumble of contradictions. Where is the good news for sinners like us? The good news is that in his first coming, Jesus came as a suffering servant, the suffering servant that we're going to see in Isaiah 53, who took the judgment that we deserved on himself. And so we see there in Isaiah 53 and verse 6, all we like sheep 
have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The reason that the second coming of Christ is good news for sinners like us is that when, when Christ comes, he's already taken our judgment. He did that at the cross. Let's look at verse 5. Go back to Isaiah 11. Look at verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. When, when Christ comes again, he is going to have righteousness and faithfulness strapped on him. But again, how is that good news for sinners like us who have been so unfaithful who have been so unrighteous. It's good news because in his first coming, Jesus took our sin so that we could take his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We sang it earlier in Jesus Messiah. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become his righteousness. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. I was watching 60 Minutes last week and they did a feature on grizzly bears in Montana. And it turns out they've made an amazing comeback. The, their, their numbers have you know, skyrocketed in recent decades. But the, at the same time that these grizzly bears were making this, this comeback, people started moving closer and closer to the habitat of the grizzly bears. <laughs> and many of them are, are ranchers, cattle farmers. Well, guess what? It turns out that grizzly bears love to eat cows. <laughs> but there's coming a time when Christ returns in the new heaven and earth. And, and what does it say? It says that the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. Cows and bears grazing peacefully in the field under the, the sun. And their, 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 their babies lying down together. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb instead of chasing down lambs to, to eat them. Wolves and lambs just living together in peace. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat instead of using its speed to chase down the young goat and, and eat it. They, they lie down together as friends. Talks about lions here. And a little child leading. Like, like imagine, imagine like little kids leading around like a huge lion, like a little puppy. 
Why? Because all of the ferocious animosities of the animal world are going to be gone. But even better, all the ferocious animosities of human beings toward one another are going to be gone. Look at verses 8 and 9. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Now we saw last week that when Christ returns, there's going to be no more war. No more war. What do we see in chapter 9 and verse 5? For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be, tur- be burned as fuel for the fire. There will be no more, no, no more armaments, no more armies, because there will be no more war. And there will be no more war because the human animosities that lead to war will be gone. Torched in the bonfire of God's love. All of our character flaws. All human selfishness. All bitterness. All envy. All hatred. Just burned up in the bonfire of the love of God. It is going to be a world of love. A world of love. That's what the great Pastor Jonathan Edwards entitled one of his greatest sermons on heaven. Edwards said that heaven and the new heaven and earth when Jesus returns is is a world of love. Why? Because the triune God of love is there. Edward said, there dwells God the Father, who is the Father of mercies and so the Father of love, who so loved the world as to give his only begotten Son to die for it. There dwells Christ, the Lamb of God, the Prince of peace and of love, who so loved the world that he shed his blood. And there dwells the Holy Spirit the spirit of divine love in whom the very essence of God, as it were, flows out and is breathed forth in love. Wow. Do you have saved loved ones who are in heaven? This is is a reality for them. This is a reality for them today. That's the reality of of heaven. And when, when Christ returns, the earth is going to become a heavenly place. What do we see about it in the latter part of verse 9? The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The great English poet John Milton wrote an epic poem about what sin did to the world. It's a poem about Genesis 3. Milton entitled it, Paradise Lost. But when Christ returns, it's going to be paradise restored. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But what makes that possible? 
It's the work that Jesus did for us in his first coming. You know, I'm struck by the image here in verse 8 of a little nursing child, an infant, playing over the hole of a cobra. You think about that. But in the new heaven and earth, the cobra has no desire to hurt that little child. No desire whatsoever. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Adder is a snake. So think about little toddlers. Little toddler putting, putting her hand into a snake, a, a, a hole full of snakes. Snakes have no desire to strike her hand. But why? Why? Because in his first coming, Jesus came right into the snake pit. And the snake did not hold back. Jesus took the poison. Jesus Jesus took the the, the toxic poison on himself so that we could be healed. For us, the snake will not strike because it struck Jesus in our place. His body, the bread, his blood, the wine, broken and poured out all for love, all for love. Let's pray. As we prepare to take part in the supper that our Lord ordained right now, let's take a few moments just to do some reflection and to examine our own hearts and where we are in our walk with Christ. Is there sin that you need to repent of? Is there a relationship where you need to seek restoration? Jesus knew the the power of visual things. He knew knew that we needed that. And, And the ordinances that he gave us are visual. Bodies being plunged beneath water and raised up. The bread, his body, the cup, his blood. And we as a church want to be a church that stays focused on the main thing that keeps the gospel central. That's why we need the Lord's Supper often. Because it brings us back to what this is all about. To the centrality of the gospel. And we need the Lord's Supper as individual believers because when you take the Lord's Supper, you are reminded in a graphic, visual way of just how much God loves you.
may he remind you of that right now. So Lord, we pray that you would use what happens in these next few minutes to strengthen us as believers, to strengthen our faith, to increase our love for you as we understand how much you have loved us. And it's in in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.